2: Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh.
3: And we're two gastroenterologists.
2: What's a gastroenterologist?
3: You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system.
2: Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now?
3: Your butt, Joe. It's your butt.
2: Oh... On today's show, we have Marie Ansari, cardiologist and physician-in-chief of Kaiser Permanente San Francisco. It's one of the largest specialty centers delivering state-of-the-art care here in Northern California. And she's a top doc there, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. And Joe couldn't join us today. He had to be at a Gathering of the Juggalos uh, convention in Tallahassee, Florida. We miss you, buddy. Stay safe out there. Um, Is that with
3: David Lee Roth?
2: You don't know who the Juggalos are, do you? No. We'll talk about it later. Anyways, okay. how are you?
3: I have a fun story about women. Oh, yeah. And stereotypes.
2: Oh, let's get to it.
3: So the other day I was at a baseball game.
2: <laughs> okay.
3: That's it. No. <laughs> I broke the stereotype. No, I'm just kidding. It was the Giants versus the Padres. So the question of San Diego came up, and I, I met this guy who was interesting, and we were talking about um, San Diego, and I was like, oh, I've been there twice. And he's like, oh, was it for a bachelorette party? And I said, no, it wasn't for a bachelorette party. I'm like, I know it's a that... a
2: very specific question. <laughs> like, I mean, I, it's not like it's Vegas,
3: I know I was like first of all I was shocked because I didn't know that San Diego has this reputation of sort of hosting like girls weekends or whatever like I guess there was a what's that show back in the day like girls gone wild San Diego I guess it was San Diego season one two three four like I really? don't know No, I don't know I'm okay. just saying that why would anyone assume San Diego <clears throat> like
2: episodes troop. four and five
3: <laughs> seasons right exactly
2: is it no it's like video maybe was like back on like VHS right
3: Uh, I don't know. Girls with tits, you can find in any format, (laughs) right? Girls with naked boobies, I'm pretty sure. MP3, I'm sure you can probably hear it.
2: (laughs) This is a strange, weird discussion. Anyway,
3: Um, so he said, was it for like a girls weekend or a bachelorette party? And I was like, you know, I just met you. I'm pretty sure you're a nice guy and you don't mean that to be sexist, but it's super sexist. Because guess what? I was there for doctor stuff. (laughs) and shopping because the conference on Manny yeah. Petty's didn't work with my schedule so I went for the doctor stuff what do you say you laughed it was like a it was a friendly conversation but it was totally it just threw me off guard because again I didn't know this sort of stereotype of San Diego and yeah. then I was a, a bit put off because he assumed I was there for some frivolous thing when I literally was there for a doctor conference.
2: Yeah. I mean, I love San Diego. So, you know, I go there all the time. We have family. Beers there, and so we burritos. Go. There beers and burritos. That's our other podcast that we're working on right now.
3: The time I was there, yeah. I was there with you right. for a GI a conference. conference. That's right. Yeah. I'm just, there's proof. Okay. Yeah, yeah. For the listener who mm-hmm. spoke to me that way, there's proof.
2: You sexist swine.
3: Coming up next. <laughs> we're going to talk to Maria. I'm sorry. We'll talk about sexist swines. Wait. Just kidding. <clears throat>
2: before, before we go to our guest, um i have a plug slash a message okay so i have a friend who is an amazing for a jazz musician by name of mark gasway g-a-s-w-a-y if you have the opportunity if you have itunes still before they take itunes down or spotify or whatever youtube has it he has a new album called live at the v it's this new um Recording this live uh, album he did at the Varnish Down, in L.A. So good, it's so good. And I'm not even like a huge jazz fan, but I'm objectively I think it's a great album. Anyways, he sent me a message regarding that email that we covered about dating and medicine, whether or not
0: the one to that use, I use, yeah,
2: yeah, the whether or not to use that you're a say that you're a doctor in your profile or not. Mm. So this is what he said. <clears throat> Seeing doctor on a dating profile is a big plus. Seeing medical professional makes me think you're not a doctor. You're probably just working a sonogram machine and you're trying to make people think you're as cool as a doctor. And that's a minus. (laughs) So that's a good, it's a good rule of thumb. Don't use medical professional if you're a doctor. If you're a doctor, use the word doctor or physician, whatever. I think that's probably okay.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think the the point of the, the take home message is. You know, don't use fluffy weird words. Just be honest. You know, yeah. either sort of say you're a doctor, or or don't, and wait for the date. You know. Yeah.
2: Awesome. Oh, that's Mark Gasway again. We'll uh, play his music uh, in the break here. Uh, stay tuned. We have Maria Ansari coming up. She's the physician in chief, and she's a cardiologist at San Francisco Kaiser. Stay tuned. <laughs>
1: Alone in this foxhole Now I'm fighting better battles With my impulse control Just one more, just one more Just a couple more times Then I'll stop hoping that it's you When my cell phone chimes Another vow, another chore Another drive to the store Spend my weeks in contemplation In the shade of a tree, Getting high and singing love songs To the crowd at the V and learning to take my chances I'm one year older Your trail has gone cold You're 350 miles away No one wise looking over my shoulder Am I feeling any better?
2: And we're back, and we have with us Maria Ansari. She is the physician-in-chief of the Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in San Francisco. Maria, thank you for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me, Kaveh.
2: So uh, today, I was hoping to do the first of what I hope is a multi-part sort of series about women in medicine. And when I think of like women in medicine and women in positions of leadership, uh, you're one of the first people that comes to mind. Well, thank you. So before I think we get into we have some questions for you. Okay. But before we do, I wanted to give a brief outline of the history of women in American medicine. So I did some research on this, so let me mansplain. I was- women I was in say, medicine can I for you. <laughs>
3: for our listeners, can I introduce Kaveh to explain, just really sum up women in medicine in a couple of minutes to us who
2: don't ladies, understand. Let me, let me take care He's of He's done some
3: research, though.
4: Well,
2: so, actually. That's important. Well, actually I, can't, I can't wait to say that once or twice in this episode. Well, actually, ladies. <laughs>
4: right, right.
2: <laughs> okay. So, you have to start, I think, with Elizabeth Blackwell. Who was the first woman to get a medical degree in the U.S.? She was born in 1821 in Bristol, England, of Bristol stool score fame, I think. And in 1832, her family came from Bristol, England to New York because her dad, Samuel Blackwell, who was this very sort of rich sugar refinery or er, sugar refiner, he lost his biggest and most profitable refinery to a fire. So. He came over to New York. He became an abolitionist, actually, and he died when she was 17. He didn't leave a lot of money for the family. So to help out, she always kind of wanted to be a doctor, but she initially took this job as being a teacher, and she did that for a while until, you know, some point the desire got too strong, and she decided she was going to do the medical school thing, and finally in 1847, she was accepted as a medical student to Hobart College, which was then called Geneva Medical College in upstate New York. And the dean couldn't really figure out what to do. So what he decided was he would put it up to a vote to the 150 male medical students. And he said, if any single one of you disagree, disapproves of this, then we won't accept her. And so they all voted yes, and so she became become a medical student. Now I've read two different accounts of that. Like one where it's like kind of the more uplifting one, which is where they're like, let's do this, this is great. This is a, we can be progressive like this. And then another one where it's a little more cynical where they're like, oh, we didn't think it was real. We thought it was all a joke.
3: Or I'd love to see her fail. This that, will be hysterical.
2: Totally. I'm sure yep. there was someone in there that had that. Anyway, yeah. so she she got in um, and in January 23rd, 19, uh, I'm sorry, 1849, she became the first woman to get a medical degree in the United States. The press actually reported it uh, favorably and the dean of her college, Dr. Charles Lee, he stood up and he bowed to her when she got her degree. So it was kind of a cool story. But... For years after that, women sort of remained underrepresented in medicine. It actually had a little bit after she came in, her sisters went to medical school. Some women-only medical school started, about 19 of them. But by the 1950s, only one of those schools remained, and the numbers had actually gone back down to where there was only about 5.5% of medical students being women. The 50s were this... Strange time, I guess, where there was this real glorification of domesticity and that placed the woman's primary role as like a homemaker. And so it was really looked down upon at that time is my understanding of it. So it wasn't really until the revival of feminism in the 1960s and the Vietnam War, which took away a lot of men that might have been interested in going to medical school and the passage of Title IX the Higher Education Act, which we kinda of think of as a sports act, but it prevented federally funded educational institutions from discriminating on the basis of gender. And so that led to more women going to medical school almost overnight. And by nineteen seventy four the number was twenty-two percent. And as of twenty seventeen, it was actually a little over half of medical students are now women. But that being said, women only make up about thirty-four percent of physicians now. And Particularly when it comes to medical leadership, we seem to have uh, an inequality there because women only account for about 18% of hospital CEOs and 16% of deans and department chairs. And when it comes to senior authorship, it's only about 10%. And there's only about 7% of editors in chief at prestigious medical journals that are women.
3: What do you think like, I mean, in your experience, is it, do you think it's a lot of like implicit bias that has led us here? Or do you think it's like an institutional problem where there's regulations and rules and things that don't make it super easy for women to sort of rise in the ranks, whether it's administratively CEO, being PIC, or being editor-in-chiefs or lead authors? For the leadership piece? Yeah.
4: Yeah. I think it's a combination of many things is typical I think um with regards to leadership first you want to you need to want to do it and two um you have to be kind of groomed and promoted in some way and I think that's where things fall apart a lot of times people view like who's a good leader when you think about like great like the rock star CEO or Uh Um, people who are in high, high leadership positions, we usually admire like lots of charisma, bravado, you know, confidence. And and it's true that men in general exude more confidence than maybe what than competence. Uh, hate to say it, <laughs> uh, men competence. <laughs> well, they exude more confidence than competence. So, for example, um, women when people are applying for a job it's it's um well described that men might overplay their accomplishments whereas women feel like they have to check every single box oh but i didn't do that one thing so i'm not qualified so i'm not going to apply right. whereas men are more likely to say you know what that's just you know window dressing and i'm You're just I'm, better at self
3: promotion yeah
4: yeah a lot more yeah. self promotion and i think um and we kind of like that i think people are attracted to that like i can do this i'm great Um, You see it in the political candidates who are out there, people who are the junior senator from Illinois or whatever, right? So people who are kind of really green, they're much more likely as males to go out there. But if you look at the female candidates out there uh, running for president, for instance, they're usually in their fifth or sixth decade of life, well-established, they've gone through the ranks, they've hit all the check boxes, And so I think that there's just this sense that they have to prove themselves. Um, They have to... They, they're they just careful and conscientious. And um, I think part of it is that, and the lifestyle is definitely a big part of it too. I think um, when I was in training and I told my mentors that I wanted to go into cardiology, for instance, I was really heavily discouraged. And I was in a class that was 30% female. So in medical school class, 30% female. And they were like, you know, you're not gonna have a good family life like that. Um, it's gonna be hard for you. Uh, to, you know, get home at night for the kids. And it just, it always just felt like there's no way that I could do it. Um, so I had to rely on, on mentors. On that other. particular yeah. topic, yeah. like
2: um, that comes up a lot. The, this question of how um, women are supposed to, or want to, or be able to do both. Yeah, What can institutions do to make it less of a binary decision between motherhood, family, and and the career.
4: Yeah, I think it I think we're seeing it in specialties that have become more female dominant. For example, OB-GYN and pediatric residencies in particular, you're seeing more shared residencies, more kind of what I would call understanding or tolerance for people to take leaves, like maternity leave, for instance. It used to be, you know, I went through training and somebody would take three or four weeks for maternity leave and everyone, there was so much guilt. And um, What's a shared uh, residency? So a shared residency is where... um, you take twice as long to do it and you oh. kind of are, or at some pr- proportion that you share that residency going through because a lot of hospital systems depend on the residents as their workforce. So uh, somebody who takes a leave of absence or matri- otherwise known as maternity leave, yeah. um, they expect to have that hole covered. They have no way to, you know, our where I work now, if the resident's not there, the attendings pick up. But a lot of yeah. hospitals depend on the residents as their primary workforce. And so they do a shared residency, like a 50-50 split. Yeah. And it might take them longer to finish. No, that makes
3: sense. Um, and you said you were discouraged from doing cardiology. So yeah. what, again, you mentioned briefly, like, Did you have mentorship? Did you have someone encouraging you? Or did you just say, you know, did you were like, I'm going to take on this male bravado and just say, I can do it. Screw you guys. Like, how did you make that decision?
4: Um, I was actually really inspired by this female cardiology fellow because I was at University of Michigan and um, there in those days. All the cardiology fellows were men, and I thought they had—they all looked like football players. They were super big, and um, there's this, you know, we do this procedure called a cardiac catheterization, and afterwards, in order to, um, you put a catheter in the femoral artery in the groin area, um, and then afterward, after you finish the procedure, you're supposed to put pressure on it and, and hold pressure, and they used to do it manually, and so they these big guys would come out, seriously looking like football players, like six foot tall, and and use both hands and compress the groin and stand there for 20 minutes, kind of grinding their teeth and looking like this is the toughest job in the world. And I just thought there's no way I'm ever going to be a cardiology cardiologist. I mean, you have to be big to do it. It was like orthopedic surgery or something. Well, They never heard of uh, interns.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Because I totally remember which for our listeners who don't know, those are like the rookies, the bottom feeders on the chain of hierarchy in the hospital. And as an intern, I definitely held so much pressure. You don't need to be a cardiology uh, fellow. That's the joy of rising but, up in the ranks. But the
2: thing is that like, it's, that's such a man thing to not even like, think of the easier ways to fix that problem. Oh, like yeah. if women yeah. were in charge of medicine at that point, it would have just been like, just put some pressure tape on that. Yeah. Or, what are we doing? Why, oh, why yeah, does this need to happen? Now we have these clamps. Right. But
4: there was this woman, a cardiology fellow who showed up out of nowhere. She um, came in uh, my third year and she uh, was four foot eleven and uh, just petite and this crazy like Tasmanian devil. She just ran around and like ran the place. And I would watch her hold the groin and she would use two fingers and just put her hand right on the pulse and kind of look around like she was bored to death and uh, had total control. And I was like so impressed with her and I thought, go girl. I'm right there
3: with you. Too bad they didn't have smartphones back then, because yeah. that would be an amazing. Because I, I didn't have smartphones, so I'm sure when you are like an intern or oh, resident, yeah, she could be. Texting. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Pressure Doesn't with one sterile. hand and just yeah. watch you. Do. It's not sterile, though. No. Yeah. <laughs> so was inspired by her. Yeah. The,
2: the other thing that you, you're touching on, though, which we talk about a lot and we think is really important, is mentorship. Yeah. And that seems to be a major roadblock in not just women in medicine, but women in positions of leadership. Because yeah, did did you have a mentor? Um, and if so was she um you may have probably had more than one but did you have one that was a woman if so did you ever have a woman who was a physician chief or a head of a hospital like you are to look up to
4: unfortunately no um sometimes you can have mentors of the other gender so i had a lot of male mentors sure you um, had to yeah yeah i didn't I, there was actually nobody um i remember thinking when i got when i took this role And the person who had the role before me in this physician in chief role, and he said, you know, I really think you should run for this. And I'm kind of an introvert. I don't like to be in the spotlight. And so it's very unusual for me to kind of run for a position because this is a somewhat of an elected position. Yeah. And um, it's kind of a selection election. But anyway. Um, and he said, you know, I really think you should run for this physician in chief role. And I said, you know, I don't even really look like a physician in chief, so I'm not going to do it. And he's like, what, is it, <laughs> <laughs> what does a yeah. physician in chief look like? Oh, you mean a white guy? Yeah. yeah. I said, I said a guy with gray hair and a mustache. Yeah. And, uh, that's kind of all I knew because the three people before him we're all gray hair and a mustache. One had a beard. Yeah. So I just, uh, I couldn't picture it, but he um, he did mentor me a little bit. And him some other male mentors, my chief of cardiology was a great mentor. And he used to say, you know, the people who really want the job, who are kind of jonesing for the job and really like putting their name out there and want the title, that they're probably the least likely yeah. that... T- that should be the, the last right. people who should be doing it. Yeah. and that Like the Game people, of Thrones. Yeah. Everyone
2: <laughs> wants Jon exactly. Snow to be the, the, Wait, yeah, the sit on the throne it? because I've seen he's the one guy yeah. who didn't want to do it. And everyone that wanted it was a weirdo.
3: Well, that's the, I feel like that's something you talk about is like the reluctant leader. Yes. You know, I feel yeah. like, and, and you can tell us if you know stats, how many reluctant leaders, maybe perhaps women that you have empowered or made chief, you know? Yeah,
4: absolutely. And now the chiefs of every major primary care department at our medical center are all women. Um, And I think I just try to look around me and say, you know, who's at the table and just look to your right, look to your left and say who's missing and and realize that there's so many great leaders out there who aren't tooting their own horn, who um, are the people that most people actually want to follow because they are there not because they're trying because serve of bravado. In some way. It's servant leadership. Yeah. Right. They they feel to they wanna serve an organizational good. And I think those are the people that people are much more likely to follow. They're much more effective leaders. They have humility. And so um yeah, I think a big part of the fun part of my job, there's not always a lot of fun parts, but I would say the best part is um developing other people, getting other people to uh, take on and lead, uh, lead programs and
3: lead teams. So of, of the things that are not fun, let's just get it out. How many emails a day? How many work emails a day? It's about 300 emails a day. Wow. Yep. Okay. Yep. And, you know, we talk on the show about things that we wish we had learned in medical school, right? Nobody teaches you to type and the electronic health record clearly yeah. is part of our everyday existence. I do know how to type. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause you're a girl, right? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and nobody taught us how to run a small business or a practice right. if you wanted to do that. Nobody taught us about leadership and certain sorts of, um, you know, kind of delicate situations, interpersonal things. Yeah. What do you think? what do you wish you had learned more sort of in med school or college? Or what do you think should be a part of like every med school curriculum, other than obviously gender kind of, um, you know, acknowledgement of gender bias? You know, it's funny
4: is as physicians, I think we judge quality or, you know, excellence as our own personal excellence. And and I think, you know, how you perform individually, it's like you're the solo athlete. Whereas I think um, the truth is that medicine is really a team sport. And if you think about like just anything like, City planning, like you need an architect, you need a lawyer. You know, I mean you need all these components, and you have to be able to work together. And I feel like we don't really talk about engaging the team and having re- multiple kind of relying on other people. That you're you're kind of taught that to excel, it's just all about you. Yeah, I mean it's kind of like that whole gunner mentality where we, um, yeah, you're just going for yourself. It's all about me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's so about process. It sounds hokey when I say it, because I feel like a lot of physicians might think it sounds crazy, but it's process and it's teams. It actually does m- matter. It's not just words. Like I think you, when you think about like a great surgical program, it's not just the surgeon. Yeah. And I don't know if I would have believed that or I'd never learned that. Yeah. So. No, it
3: is true. Cause uh, the mentality of a med student and what, how we all excelled was just taking a test by yourself. Yeah. You know, and that was, there's positive reinforcement there. And I never really thought about like, you know, you don't actually ever solve problems together as a team until you're thrown into the fire when you're put on, you know, taking care of patients all of a sudden, but you don't really think about that.
4: you can't be an expert on everything. And so just being able to call on colleagues, that whole collegiality thing, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you get trained to kind of toughen up and not, the more consults you get, the weaker you are, that sort of thing. Whereas, wow, the collaborative benefit of... Hundred people thinking about this or working on problem solving, you get all yeah. these problem
3: solvers. Yeah. So and asking for help, I think that's also something that is yeah. uh, an important thing to learn at some point. That I don't think some of the like older docs you see like they they won't ask for help, you know. And I and I, you know we see it like uh, all the time, and that's something that I think you would unless learn.
2: it's technology related. They seem yeah. to be able to <laughs> yeah. ask for help when it <laughs> right. comes to that sort of stuff. <laughs> right. So so sort of bringing it back to the topic of women, particularly in medicine. Let me ask you: um, Do you feel like, as a female doctor, well, maybe this was not. This is probably not totally appropriate to you now in your position, but when you were going through regular training, when you're resident, when you were uh, just an attending before you had a position of leadership, do you feel like you, do you feel like you were treated less formally than male doctors?
4: Yeah, by every many levels, it's subtle. Like you don't actually notice it too much, but you, you don't think about it. Is, um, I think when I was a fellow, um, I remember my chief of service came to me, you know, we, were, we had early morning rounds and he said, you know, I, I think it would be great if you started bringing coffee to rounds. Um, for everyone. Yeah, for everyone. Oh. Um, and I thought at that time I didn't used to drink coffee. Now I do. Um, but. Um,
2: You're like, I'm the one person that doesn't drink coffee here. I know. You're like, this is like,
3: offensive on several
4: and levels. Yes. Could
2: you smile more?
3: Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> right. I think that kind of thing where
4: um, I don't think, you know, male fellows would have been asked to do that. I remember when I was a fellow, um, I was a senior fellow, and I found out that there was a, a pay differential between me and another uh, male fellow. And um, this was... I approached my attending about it and said, hey, you know, I, I, um, I noticed that so-and-so, um, yeah. we were talking, and uh, his salary is higher than mine, but we're the same level. And, you know, in, in residency and fellowship, there's an NIH pay scale that um, determines at least the, the floor of what yeah. your salary might be. And I was below what the NIH had recommended, uh, the National Institutes of Health. And so um, he said, well, you know, let's just call him Joe. Joe's not here. Um, <laughs> well, Joe, um, he's married and he has a seven-year-old daughter, and uh, you're you don't have kids, and and you are a double-income family because you have your husband. Were you like, I like forty-year-old
3: scotch, though? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like you should do something super manly and outrageous, yes, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah.
4: Well, I just remember I have an thinking, expensive
2: coke habit. Does that, count?
4: <laughs> that would have been awesome. I said, well, you need to pay us both more um, because he was also below the NIH pay scale, um, but still higher than me. And I, and I think, uh, you know, I didn't have kids during fellowship because I couldn't afford to. Right. And the lifestyle was, right. I didn't have someone at home helping me manage childcare, So well, th- there well, was not, that was not going to happen. What, what
2: guts that took though. Yeah. To tell that to your, to Yeah. Your I boss. raised
4: both our salaries. I was going to say, did you mm. guess? Yes. And and I raised both Good our salaries. You. I also changed the way the call schedule was done. Um, it used to be one week on and one week off. Um, and, uh, I thought it was inhumane. Yeah, so I didn't get to benefit from that, but it was really good. It was your legacy. Group. Yeah.
2: So let me ask you a sort of strange-sounding question, but sure. Do you? I thi- expect nothing less. <laughs> you know me. Do you think women are held to a higher standard or a lower standard than men in medicine?
4: In the practice of medicine,
2: yeah. We've talked about on the show how there's actually been at least one study that shows that women doctors are not only non-inferior in some ways they're probably better. We've done that. is uh, a study of um, yes,
3: yes, hospitalists uh, about two yes, or three years ago. New England ago. Journal. Yeah.
4: I, Where,
2: I guess my first yeah. question would be, do you feel like women are held to a different standard? And you mean? I so, think different the by the lower? patient
4: or by their, their colleagues. Yeah. I Either. think by patients, I don't feel that from my colleagues, to be honest. I, I've, I don't. Um, I think. I think. You know, anytime you don't exude confidence, people will eat you alive. Um, yeah. When you, especially when you're in really competitive fields, so I think that can happen, and um, and sometimes because of humility. That can, I've seen it where I can see some a female friend or colleague calling a consultant and getting kind of chewed out um, because mm-hmm. their question was quote unquote stupid or whatever or uh, not good enough or worthy. But in general, my own personal experience, I've never felt that. And I'm not. A super kind of bravado style person i just try to be like quiet confidence yeah. kind of person You'd that but kind of um i think patients um definitely i feel it that they i have to work a little harder to prove that i'm worthy uh because right. uh i there's so many times i always wear my white coat i was gonna say women in their white coat yeah. it's the armor always. right yep. yeah yeah i always wear my white coat and if i don't Um, even when I wear my white coat and I have a card that used to say, it doesn't say it now, but it used to say chief of cardiology and I would give it to the patient and I would say, I'm your cardiologist and I would go see them every day. And then when it came time to kind of consent them for a procedure and I'd say, okay, you know, are you ready to sign? And they'd say, you know, I think I'm going to wait and talk to the cardiologist
3: and then make a decision. Right. Like I am the cardiologist. (laughs) At least the other thing is with respect to how hard you have to prove yourself, there's are so many parts of medicine right that you're living right it's a clinician it's an administrator there's researchers and do you think you know women are getting less published is that because they seek out a life of research and publication less often or is that because you know research is hard in a different way it's homework all the time right it's not the hustle of seeing patients one after another notes electronic health record emails this and that but it's always homework so there's admin and research and clinic and your colleagues respect for your advice like you know do you think that each of these venues have their own degree of proof that these women have to we have to prove ourselves in in different ways every day
4: yeah, I think women definitely, I and mean, when we know this, that working women have more of the household responsibilities when they get home, the social, whether or not they have kids or even whether or not they're married, they tend to be kind of responsible for all the social activities of caring, caregiving for elder parents or. Whatnot. I think with uh, research publication it's kind of interesting because there's definitely a hierarchy there, and you have to fight for authorship. And I've been there too, where um, you know it, people kind of assume that because because of tenure or whatnot that they will put their name as first author. And it seems like some women don't speak up for themselves. I've had to coach and counsel people where they felt like you know they did all the work, and yet the senior leader is trying to. Uh, circumvent that. So that's called yeah.
3: bropropriation. <laughs> the British Medical School <laughs> Journal came out with all these, like, sort of um, urban dictionary for like parlance for what's going on in um, gender inequality. And one yeah. is we all know mansplaining. Yeah. One is the mantle, which is a panel of decision makers, which are all men, <laughs> like what's happening in Alabama, the mantle. Yeah. And one is bropropriation, where yeah. the dude, the guy, is taking credit something that a woman has clearly done.
2: So a yeah. Yeah. So, uh, question I have that actually is probably, I think more for you, because you, Maria, you're not an interventionist are you? you don't, no. So as a proceduralist, Lizzie, someone who does procedures, something that's like a, a job with your hands, yes. an old fashioned job for men with their yes. hands. Do you feel like you have had to, particularly during training, that you really had to be even better than everyone else. Did you feel like you had to prove something, or, or not?
3: That's a good question. Um, I I didn't. I don't know. I don't. I don't feel that. Um, you know. I think in med school I learned to avoid the gunners, the the kids who are quietly competitive. And I just decided that you know what I did was sort of you know I was competing with myself. I do think when I first had my first job um, that I did have to do it. I remember sort of talking about how many scopes per day. And I remember being very kid-gloved, you know, with how much I could do. And it made me feel, oh, I'm, you know, is it because I'm new? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm young? And I remember questioning that, you know, very early on.
2: Can I tell you what I imagine fellowship was like for you? Because I wasn't a fellow with you. Please go on. I imagine (laughs) it's a lot like what happens to a guy the first day of, like, prison. You just went in there and you wanted to smash a chair over the biggest guy's head, just to prove Me, to everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. that you were not to be messed with.
3: So I went to a fellowship where I trained, so I had immediately this um, you know, this ability to feel comfortable. You know, I didn't feel yeah. I had to prove myself because sure. I went you to the place that I, tra- right, so yeah. I felt like I'd already yeah. had this sense of acceptance yeah. and, and you know, um, I, I didn't have to, I didn't feel like I had to prove, that's honestly part of the reason why I left. Because I've been at NYU for yeah, 11 you want to years do something different and I was like I don't I feel like I should prove myself like I feel like this you know there's com- a little bit of complacency and I I just didn't want that so yeah so I moved to San Francisco so what do you think is your role I guess or or institutionally or nationally um, to make it better you know how do we cultivate women as leaders how do we make sure that there's mentorship you know you can't just say Let's, you have, you know, I think you're trying to cultivate mentorship programs and how do you do that?
4: Well, I think I try to do a lot of one-on-one coaching where, um, I never turn down when someone reaches out to me and says, I want to meet with you. And could you, and I I get those requests from within my organization and even outside my organization and people at different stages of their career. And I always say yes. And each time I do it. And you know, as I'm going to it, I'm like, oh gosh, you know, I'm so busy. Why am I doing this? And then I always leave feeling really energized because I'm so inspired by these strong women who are moving along in their career or just starting out. Um, I think the other thing is just encouraging people I do know that aren't kind of the reluctant leader. Um, so to speak, I feel like, um, these are really strong people. They have all the capabilities of being a leader. They have authenticity and courage and and um, competence. And yet they just don't see themselves in that way and just helping them embrace their style and say, you know, you don't need to be like an Obama-style orator to be in charge, right? Yeah. Um, you are good enough. And reminding them of, like, people want you to, to lead. And so just um, encouraging that, recognizing uh, the strength that they have within them. Um, and then I always say yes to things like this. Yeah. <laughs> Just I because I think it's um, the more that you, um, you know, and I, I did give a talk not too long ago about being an introvert and uh, and and being in leadership. And it really brought out a lot of other introverts, which I loved because, um,
3: you know, introverts can be leaders too. Yeah. But, but yeah. you need to be sort of, Chosen though, you know, as yeah. an introvert, you're not necessarily gonna. You said you didn't necessarily seek out a position, you need someone yeah. to talk to you and, and mentor you and encourage you. You're not gonna yeah. do that on your own, right? So yeah, that's a hard, um, that's sort of a catch, you know, catch-22. Sometimes you're gonna be the best, but you're a little wallflower maybe that that doesn't know it, and someone needs to see it. And you find need a it. nudge, yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Well, Maria, thank you so much for coming on. I think. We think that you're doing it the right way in terms of leadership. Your sphere of influence is, I think, even bigger than you know. And I think you're inspiring a lot of people, women and men. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for coming on.
3: And and just as our listeners don't know, the physicians that Maria works with every day also give her resounding votes of confidence, you know, like this is objective data that she can't argue, even if as a reluctant leader, she wants to, it's data, you know, people really do respond and appreciate, you know, trying to help women cultivate their careers and, you know, world domination and such. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) So thanks for coming on. Thank
4: you, Lizzie. Thank you, Kaveh. Thank you.
2: The opinions on this podcast
3: are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. All antidotes and patient related details have been changed with respect to
2: date, sex and certain details so that patient identification is not possible.